I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. This is Evidence for the Bible, Part 11, and the question we're asking today is, do we have the right books in our Bibles? This is, of course, a natural question that arises as we're talking about prophecy, as we're talking about evidence for the Bible. At some point, someone's like, yeah, but how do you know you even have the right books in your Bible? Uh, In particular, we'll talk today about the Old Testament, and then next week we're going to talk about the New Testament. So this is the issue of what's called canon. The canon of the scriptures. You've heard this before. It's not the kind of canon that goes boom. It comes from a Greek word, kanon, which means a ruler or a measuring stick. If I brought up a yardstick up here, that's, that's like a kanon. That's, that's a ruler. This is the rule by which we measure other things. Um, the idea with the canon of scripture is these are, in Christianity, the term canon, the books that God inspired, and we use these as our rule for judging everything else as true or false. This is, this is our ultimate source for truth. These books, this Bible, this is why we call it the Word of God. We think God inspired these, these books. This is why we call it the Bible. Actually, the word Bible means book. And we call it the book. It's not just a book, it's the book. Or the Holy Bible, because it's got God's holiness stamped upon it with the truth that's in it. Now, I'm going to jump straight into the nitty-gritty on this issue, and we're going to talk about the historical school. The historical critical school, that's what it's called. This is a group of scholars and a group of researchers that focuses on looking at the Old Testament, or the New, for that matter, and they ask, how historically did the canon develop, or the list of books in the Old Testament or New Testament, how did it historically develop? So when did the current list in our Bibles gain full acceptance? Were there any books in doubt? Were there any books that were rejected? They really like this. The historical critical school tends to be people who don't believe the word of God is the word of God. And they love the idea of rejected books or the lost books of the Bible. And you get these like documentaries every year or so we see a new one come out. The The banned books of the Bible, the lost books of the secret books of the Bible, the hidden books of the, all these sort of, you know, history channel and, and various documentaries that come out, man, they love that kind of stuff. We'll come back to that stuff a little bit later. They tend to this historical critical school. They tend to be the ones that are interviewed on all these programs. They almost without error, they will always be interviewed on these programs and they'll be spouting authoritatively how these lists of the canon originated. And they almost always assume the latest dates possible. So if there's a list of the canon in, say, 250 AD, then they assume that that list had just come up. Like if we have the list, it must have, then 250 AD, that's the point. It couldn't be referencing an earlier tradition or something like that. So they assume latest dates possible. They're very critical um, of the Bible. But... They have a philosophical, philosophical, I don't know what that is, a philosophical assumption that they're making. Before they do any of their research, before they do any of their statements, they assume one thing. They assume there's no such thing as a real, genuine canon. This is really important. Therefore, there's no canon, so there's no actual list of books that reflects books inspired by God. This is what's assumed at the outset. It's a presumption. There is no actual list of the canon. Therefore, the Christian list 
of books inspired by God is just a list. The books are not actually inspired by God. That's the assumption. Now, this is literally the most important part of everything I'm going to share with you today. You ready? Let's take the Old Testament canon. Or let's take the whole Christian canon for now. What, when do you think the Christian canon started to exist? When did it start to exist? When did it first begin existing? Was it, well, these historical critical school, what will they say? They'll be like, well, in the fourth century, maybe in the second century. Perhaps they'll say the 16th century when the Catholic Church decided that they would officially dogmatically declare, here's our list of books in the Council of Trent. I'll take questions afterwards if you haven't, but. I did, it, yes, it's my clever rhetorical, get you thinking questions. Yes. So think about this. Fourth century, second century, 16th century. This comes to the issue of what really is the canon in the first place. This is the assumption part. If I assume the canon is just your list, well, then it started to exist when you wrote down your list. But if the canon is actually God's inspired works, they started to exist one at a time as they were written. So the canon existed the first moment the first book was written. Now there's a canon. How many books are in it? One. Another one is written, inspired by God. Now there's two. Another one is written. Now there's three. And so then you get to the point now in the New Testament church. Here we are. We have 66 books. How we count them anyway. This is the most important part of today. If you can understand the difference between the canon these historical critical people are talking about and the canon Christians are talking about, and they're two different things. Let me give you an example. I write a lot of Microsoft Word documents, an awful lot. Almost all of my Bible studies are stored on my computer in Microsoft Word documents. If I wanted to, I could just reteach old stuff. I mean, if you think about it as a Christian, that's what, what I do anyways. I open the Bible and I teach old stuff. But, <laughs> but when did, there, there's a canon, right? There's like, these are the actual documents you've written, Mike, versus the rest of the world's documents you didn't write. Here's your actual canon. When did that start to exist? Well, the moment I wrote my first Word document, it existed. There was no list written anywhere, but I knew it, and it was real. It existed. There's a canon of my writings the moment I write them. So when more books are added, or more documents are added, that canon gets bigger. That's how that works. So the, the simple answer is, when did the canon start to exist? The moment the first book was actually inspired by God. However, if no books are inspired by God, no actual canon exists at all. And any list is a list of lies. That's what's at stake here. We have to start by saying, wait, are there inspired books? Before we ask, do we have the right ones? But we've already done that. So to prove the historical school wrong, this historical critical school, which is Usually all the discussions focused around these guys. I did the series on prophecy. The first 10 weeks were all about prophecy. What was the point of prophecy? To conclude that God has, in fact, spoken. So we gave lots of examples, although we didn't do even half of the prophecies in Scripture that we could have done. But we gave lots of examples of prophecy. Ezekiel prophesied the destruction of the city of Tyre in great detail, and there's no sufficient rebuttal to this. Um, Daniel prophesied coming kingdoms in order, he described the nature of their reigns and those types of kingdoms, the rise of Greece and the nature of their how Greece would conquer. 
He described Antiochus Epiphanes specifically and the Seleucid and Ptolemaic dynasties and their decades-long battles going back and forth, which all happened hundreds of years after it was written. And then when it comes to Jesus, there's tons of detail in the Old Testament about Jesus, provably written before he came. And in many places, lots of different books in our canon record things that Jesus did ahead of time. In Genesis, from Genesis 3, we read about Jesus was the seed, how he would gain victory over death and sin. In Genesis 5, we have the gospel hidden in the very genealogy, the very names of the text. In Genesis 22, we have a detailed 3D prophecy located where? In Jerusalem, in the location where Jesus is crucified. We have Abraham offering Isaac and all the details there. Abraham even says this is prophecy, speaking about it later. We have um, the book of Numbers, We have also Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. We've got like all these different books that speak of this Messiah coming. That's the Torah, really. Across the board, we have this. Then we have in the prophets, Daniel gave a timeline of when Jesus would show up, that he would die, and why he would die, an atoning death to save others. This hundreds of years before Christ showed up. Isaiah talks about his deity, his death and resurrection, the atonement specifically. A greater detail is given in Isaiah about Christ's crucifixion than in the New Testament. We have more detail there. In Micah, it talks about, for instance, where Jesus would be born, where this Messiah is going to show up. We we read about him in Malachi and Zechariah and Psalms. uh, Chapter 22, a detailed account of the crucifixion is given. In Psalm 110, he's talked about other places in the Psalms as well. In the historical books, like, say, Second Samuel, we read about him. Am I making my point? We have the fingerprint of God prophecy. We've already discussed this. I've already done the groundwork for this. All throughout the Old Testament saying God has spoken. Against all of the odds, this has happened. And it's not just one book. It's throughout. This is a case for the entire Old Testament. And in, in reality, it's the Old Testament grabbing the New Testament from a distance And saying, hey, I told you about that, so I must be legit. And I told you about that, so that must be legit. And it's a a double confirmation going both ways as we read this. It's pretty amazing. So, in conclusion, if God inspired... We're not done for the night, don't worry. (laughs) In conclusion, this main point, this most important point I'm making today. If God inspired any books out there, then there is a canon of inspired books, whether we have the list or not, whether we're aware of them or not, if there are inspired books, there's an actual canon somewhere out there. But then the question is, do we have the right one? So the question is not here, is there a canon, but do we have the right one? So for this, um, does the Christian list match those books which God actually inspired? I want to make a quick differentiation. I I got this from uh, James White. I think he does some great work on the canon. And... He presents it like this. There's canon one and canon two, two different definitions of the word canon. So canon one, that's the historical critical school. Actually, um, there's basically man's list of, of writings. Is there, a, is there a list that's accurate or whatever? Then there's canon two, which would be God's authoritative writings, the things that God actually wrote. So if, if we do believe that God actually wrote things, now the question is simply, do we have a good list of that? Do we have the right books? That's what's in question. Because if there's no such thing as God's real writings, then there can't be any such thing as a council of men or a group of people that says, hey, we got the right list. Well, there is no right list. So, yeah. All right, so now I've already done the hardest part. 
I've already done the prophetic evidence for the canon, for the fact that God has spoken in the Old Testament, which grabs the new as well and says, yep, that's confirmation for both. I think that's rational. And later on, we're going to discuss uh, other verifications. So we'll talk about science. We'll talk about archaeology. We'll talk about history. We'll talk about all that kind of fun stuff. But now we'll just ask this. Is our Old Testament list right? And this is sort of an exercise that's almost not needed after you've discussed prophecy. Because every prophecy has come from various parts of our Old Testament. It's sort of affirmed already. But because this discussion comes up, and because I'm doing this series on evidence for the Bible, I want to bring it up and have a discussion about it. So I'll start at the beginning, though. Here's a really quick outline of the Old Testament. In our Christian Old Testament, we have 39 books. These books were not written all at once. They were not written by the same person. They were written by approximately 40-plus different authors. They were written over a thousand-year period of time. Moses' books being written about 1400 B.C., and then the youngest books of our Old Testament being written about 400 B.C. So there's a thousand years between Moses' authorship time and then the, uh, like Malachi, these other later prophets. <clears throat> now, the New Testament is different than this. The New Testament was probably written in 70 years or less. It was written in a much shorter period of time by eyewitnesses and people who traveled with Christ, and it all connects to Jesus. But this is different. The Old Testament's a, a different kind of thing. There's three sections that the Jews would say exist in our Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the law, which are the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then you have the prophets. So after you get the, the law, you have the prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the book of the 12 prophets. They, they considered the 12 of these smaller sized prophets to be part of one book. So they count their Bible a little differently than us. They'd usually say it's 22 books, sometimes 24. It depends on how they, they put like Ezra and Nehemiah as one book. They put Samuel as one book, Kings as one book, um, that sort of thing. Then they have the writings. So the law, the prophets, and then the writings. The writings are Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra and Nehemiah, one book, and Chronicles. They reckon this as either 24 or 22 books. But it's the same as the Christian 39 books of the Old Testament. But obviously, a a, a modern-day non-Christian Jew is not going to call your Old Testament the Old Testament. They're just going to call it the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, or the Jewish Bible. And they'll say 22 or 24 books. Same exact book as the Protestants, Protestant Bibles have nowadays. It's the same book modern Jews have. It's the same book ancient Jews have. We'll get into that. Now, as far as how did these books come about? Like, why these books and no others? Well, this, especially with the Old Testament, it's a whole different study than with the New Testament. We have more details with the New Testament. But with the Old Testament, there's a fragmented history. We don't have, like, a little easy dotted line to follow from the addition of the different books. Um, But what we do not have for sure is we don't have this, like, Da Vinci Code kind of like secret smoky room deal where like these like these like powerful people in robes get together and then they talk about which books they're going to put in the 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 Hebrew Bible and which books they're going to ban because they're oh the forbidden books of you know that kind of thing like that never happened in history there's no time or place in history where you can say that happened so um, what did happen well the reception of the old testament was more organic than it was council-based. 
It wasn't that there was just a group of men getting together to say, take these in. In fact, we have evidence for this, even in the text itself. Moses's books, the first five books, the Torah, were received right away. We read about it. He wrote them down and they accepted them immediately as Torah. Other books later on constantly refer back to the law, to the law of Moses. It was received immediately. It was laid up in the temple. His books, again, written about 1400 B.C. They were just immediately received. It wasn't the council. It was just the people went like, wow, this is from God. They accepted it. They received it. Moses was an approved uh, messenger of God. Joshua's writings also were received right away. Let me read to you. Joshua 24, verses 26 and 27. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. So he adds it to Moses' writings. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, Behold, the stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord, which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So he writes down these words, and his written words he considers to be the words of the Lord. So Joshua brings a message from God, the word of God. It's, in, it's seen as inspired right away. It's immediately received as a permanent text that Israel will have forever. This shows something really interesting. This shows that the Old Testament was not orally transmitted for like a thousand years before someone finally wrote it down. Yet I heard that in school. I heard professors tell me that the Old Testament was just memorized orally. And they're like, how could they memorize it orally? How could? But yet read the thing. And it says here they wrote these things down immediately. Immediately. Um, Samuel's writings... In 1 Samuel 10.25, we read that what Samuel prophesied was written down and was put away in the temple and saved right away. It was laid up in the tabernacle. Daniel, the book of Daniel gives us more information on this. Daniel had a copy of Moses and the prophets. Now, Daniel's around 600. He has a copy, as a physical copy, he's reading of Moses and the prophets. And he specifically mentions Jeremiah by name. Now, Jeremiah, what's amazing about this is Jeremiah was only 70 years before Daniel. So Jeremiah is writing 70 years, and his text had already been received and seen as one of the prophets. So do you see what we're we're getting is an organic adoption of, of Scripture as it was written? It was just brought right into the Hebrew text. They were like, this is canon, and they just brought it right in. Let me read it to you, Daniel 9, 11. Yes, all Israel, he's praying to God, has transgressed your law, And has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore the curse and oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we've sinned against him. Because we've sinned against him. So the law, Moses, the law, he's speaking about what Moses declared as being fulfilled in them. And then again in Daniel 9 verse 2, he says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. Wait, Jeremiah's writings were what? The word of the Lord and they were written? So he sees Jeremiah's prophecies as being from God and of God. That he would accomplish 70 years in the, des- in the desolations of Jerusalem. Interesting, interesting stuff. See, Jeremiah was, a full, was a, um, an approved prophet. His writings had already been stored up and he wasn't the only one. You have the books of Moses. We know Joshua's, Samuel's were laid up. We know that Dave, uh, Daniel already knew about Uh, about Jeremiah and other prophets, although he doesn't name each one. So several of the prophets are not only supported here, but they're also supported by the books of Kings and Chronicles because we read about their prophets, them coming and giving prophecies in those books. 
Elijah, Elisha, but also some of the biblical prophets that we read about too. Some of the ones who were authors. Plus, they mention each other sometimes. Some of these prophets will mention one another and sort of affirm that it was known that this was a prophet of Israel. So the point is, they were received as they were written. It wasn't this like, oh, we found this dusty old book. It's got great stuff in it. Let's add it to our book of our, our holy books. But rather, it was like, no, man, this is a messenger of God. He's delivered us truths of God. We're going to receive his information into our canon because it's clear to us that this is the word of the Lord. There were a few principles involved in, a, in adopting Old Testament uh, books or, say, allowing a person to speak with authority. Let me give you a couple of them. One was the prophetic test. Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 and 22, it says this. If you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Because that's obviously a concern. What if someone says, oh, the Lord showed me, and they're wrong. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So if a prophet comes and they say this, 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 and it doesn't happen, they're full of hot air. Don't listen to them. doesn't matter how clever they are. doesn't matter how smart they are. doesn't matter what position they hold. If it doesn't happen, don't listen. So that would be a, a short-term prophetic confirmation. This is why we see a lot of these prophecies of the Old Testament have short-term fulfillments. But then the prophet will shift gears and give a long-term prophecy. The short-term prophecy was to confirm he's a prophet. The long-term prophecy was so that we could later on look back and confirm it again from hindsight. And so, um, pretty neat stuff. There was also a consistency test. Deuteronomy 13 talks about this consistency test. Interesting that how to test a prophet is given to them in the first set of books they received. So they could test the later ones. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3, it says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So perhaps they just got lucky. They say, oh, such and such is going to happen. And then later on it happens. And, and everyone's like, whoa, you were right. And they're like, hey, let's go worship the bunny king. You know, and because and, uh, you know how there was the cult of the bunny king back then. And at that point, you say, okay, eh, denied. If future prophecy disagrees with older prophecy, it's wrong. Now, this is interesting because this is the opposite of every cultish group I've ever met. They all embrace new revelation and have it supersede old revelation but the biblical perspective is completely different new truth can't disagree with old truth because if it's if it was true then you can't disagree with it you know if it's god's revealed truth you can't change it you can't overrule it you can't alter it but uh like in mormonism there is i believe the term further light the idea that oh we're we're not really disagreeing we're just we're getting it even better now and and yet the thing they're doing is really disagreeing is actually what it's doing. It's just a poetic twist on, uh, on, on false teaching. Isaiah 8.20 says this. Isaiah 8.20, it says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now Jesus, he did this. He came and he said, I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And so he's a fulfillment of it. He was an, uh, an altering or changing uh, the New Covenant, all this is all buried in the Old Testament 
waiting for Christ to sort of unwrap it for us, so to speak. So it shows the acceptance of a written word from before these other prophets came, and check this out, the authority of those previous scriptures over any new revelations. This is a death blow to the idea of any sort of group saying they have authority over the Bible, whereas the Bible says, hey, you listen to me, I've got authority over them. So this is where Sola Scriptura, this sort of idea comes from, is these types of teachings. The prophets also were verified through their, uh, their short-term prophecies, through their various activities and the things that they did at the times. We read about them, right? So they were verified, not to me, I wasn't there to see these short-term prophecies fulfilled, of course, but to the people of Israel from whom we inherited this Old Testament. They were verified to them through those means. Now, in reality, we don't know in every case why each book of the Old Testament was received. Um, it's possible that, in fact, it's probable that they knew more about, say, Job than we do now. About its origins and its author and things like that. They knew more about it than we do now. What we know now is they accepted it and the other books they accepted had fulfilled prophecy. So it's not irrational to say, okay, we'll embrace the whole thing, if that makes sense. I'll get more into that in a second. So we don't know why each book was accepted, but something we do know is that in the time between Malachi, like 400 BC, and Jesus showing up, sometime in that span of time, something happened where Israel not only had this full canon of Old Testament scriptures, but they also felt that that was it. They said, that's it. The time of prophecy is over. It ended after the destruction of the second temple, or excuse me, the, the building of the second temple. It ended after Malachi's time. Now, let me share a few things with you that will help support this. In 180 BC, from 180 BC, we have this uh, book called Sirach, which is actually part of the Catholic Apocrypha, interestingly enough. But in the, in the opening pages of the Sirach, in the prologue of, to this book, what you have is references to the three sections, the law, the prophets, and the other writings. You have this reference three times in the prologue. That's interesting. In other words... When you have the three sections, you have their Jewish canon. That's, that's reference. Now, it's not given every single book, but it's there. It's there. And he says that it's in the prologue, it's his grandfather who had studied well these three sections of the Jewish Hebrew Bible. So here we have 180, then it's his grandfather who had studied well. So before his grandfather's time, it had already been received. So we're looking at a Jewish canon that exists, it seems, before, well before Christ shows up. That's important, I think. Um, but there's more information. Josephus, who is a first century Jewish Roman historian, he gives us two things that are worth noting. He says that after Artaxerxes' time, there were good writings, but nothing of the same quality or level as the prophetic Old Testament writings. That means after Malachi's time. After Malachi's time, there weren't any more prophetic writings adopted by the Jews. And he gives the same, the other thing he gives us is the same number. He listed either as 22 or 24 books, the same mathematical way of listing the Hebrew Old Testament that they have today. The same Jewish Old Testament they have today. So that's the point is they had the same books and they saw that prophecy sort of ended after that time. They thought something had happened. Now the New Testament, when Jesus shows up, we read about an environment of belief where the Old Testament is seen as inspired 
and it's just the word of God. Constantly you read about it. It is written, it is written, it is written. God says. But other books are not looked at like that. Jesus, he actually affirmed the Jewish canon whenever he says, it is written, it is written. And he goes to the Jews and he says to them, is it not written? Is it? And then he quotes from all over the Old Testament. But he never quotes from things that aren't in the Old Testament as though they are. So he doesn't quote from some lost book, some quote where we're like, what's that from? But rather, he quotes just from the Old Testament. And what's interesting is the Jews that he's arguing with, why is it that they never say, well, but that's not even in the real Hebrew Bible. What are you talking about, Jesus? Mm-hmm. Nobody ever says this, even though all their debates are about this issue. Whereas nowadays, some people do. How do you even know that's in the Bible? Well, they didn't. back then they seemed to know real well what was in there. Jesus and the apostles throughout the New Testament, they quote from the Old Testament about 300 times. That's a lot, right? They quote from the Old Testament. So this, and they quote from it in special ways, like it is written as God says, the word of the Lord, all that sort of thing. Jesus affirms the Old Testament books in a few different places. Um, he says in Matthew 23, verse 35, he's rebuking the Jews and he says to them that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel. Abel is in what book of the Bible? Genesis, right? All the way from the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, speaking then of the last prophet, uh, martyr, recorded in the Old Testament. So I've got the first martyr, Abel, to the last martyr of the Old Testament, and then at 400, it stops. He doesn't mention any of the Maccabees guys. He doesn't mention any of the other Jews in the next 400 years that died. It's as though these are the only ones in, in his mind because they are the bookends of our Old Testament books. So in a sense with that, he sort of affirms that whole Old Testament. There's more. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that'll be Genesis to Malachi. Jesus holds them all accountable to a known standard of scripture and nobody debates and nobody argues with him. Um, now, the Jews... They, it's shown that they, from before the time of Christ, they thought the canon was done and they were waiting for something really big to happen. Now, let me quote to you from 1 Maccabees 9.27. This is also in the Catholic Apocrypha. This is not part of the Jewish canon, though. 1 Maccabees 9.27, it says, So there was a great distress in Israel, the worst since the time when the prophets ceased to appear among them. What? Maccabees, writing about 150 BC, this book is saying that it's an accepted fact that the prophets are no longer appearing to Israel. Josephus gives us a specific time when they thought this happened, and it would have been after Artaxerxes' reign, right at the, at the close of the Old Testament. It was just understood and known by the Jews that God was no longer doing that. And they were waiting. They hoped that he would in the future, but it hadn't happened. So you can't really take Maccabees as being evidence of what? God speaking when here he's saying that the prophets hadn't come when the author of the book would have to be one of these guys for it to be in the scriptures. Josephus mentions that as well. Um, At this point, sometimes people mention the Council of Yamnia or Jamnia. Has anybody heard of that? The Council of Jamnia or Yamnia. This this is supposedly a council. I heard about this years ago. A council of Jews that got together in somewhere between 75 and 115 AD, somewhere in that time period. And they they were deciding what will be in our Old Testament. 
Um, however, the, and they use this to try to say, see, the Hebrews had no idea what was going to be in their Old Testament. They didn't know. Even though that flies in the face of all the evidence I've just given you, it's like, how can these all be true? But this was not a council. Yamnia, there was a school there. And what we, do, we have recorded is a discussion. And it's not about what books belong in the Old Testament. It's a discussion about whether or not Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, whether or not they make the hands unclean. And you're like, make the hands unclean? Well, if you understand Judaism, you'll understand unclean. Unclean hands, you've got to wash your hands. The belief was that the scriptures, when you touched them, they, they, they said, you know what? Whenever you touch a scripture, it makes your hands unclean. And that would force people to go wash their hands afterwards. It was a way of exalting the scriptures. It might sound negative, but it's actually positive. So they had a discussion about whether or not Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon also made the hands unclean. It very likely wasn't even about whether or not they were inspired. It was about whether or not they made the hands unclean. Yet people have blown this up, this discussion at a school, as though it was some great Jewish council with all the authority of the Jews. It, it's just, it shows their bias. It shows their bias. It's a bunch of baloney. So the next thing I want to talk about is this. The lost books of the Bible. Um, yes, I found them. <laughs> I found them. They were, they were Batman comics, it turns out, in, in my old uh, stash from when I was a kid. The Apocrypha. Let's talk about the Apocrypha, because if you're going to say that any books belong in the Bible, you're going to have to pick one of the Apocryphal books. So what is, what is the Apocrypha? Well, the Catholic Church has a bigger Bible than you and me. That's why they're better. And I'm just playing. Um, the Catholic Church has a, has a, a Bible that includes about 13 books, depending on how you count them, that we don't have, or documents that we don't have in ours. It's Tobit, Judith, additions to the book of Esther, the wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, which is not Ecclesiastes, Baruch, the epistle of Jeremiah, which they usually join as one book, the song of the three children, the story of Susanna, Bell and the dragon, which are joined to the book of Daniel, the prayer of Manasseh, and first and second Maccabees. Some of these books go by different names, um, but these are, these are those books. So what about the Apocrypha? Well, this is the difference between the Protestant or Christian Old Testament, I'll say Christian, I don't mean that as an insult, and then the Catholic Old Testament. The, it, the Catholic Bible, the Christian Bible, has the same New Testament books. There's no difference there. It's the Old Testament where there's differences. What's at stake here? If, if our list of books is wrong here, what are we losing? Well, we have the same books, they just have more. So we're actually not, none of the books in my Old Testament are in question here. It's books that aren't in my Old Testament that are in question. Um, also, the Eastern or the Greek Orthodox Church, they have the Catholic books plus First Estrus, Third Maccabees, Fourth Maccabees, and Psalm 151, um, which none of them belong, but we'll get into the discussion on here. So the Catholics, the reason why the, this is important is because Tied to this issue of which books belong in the Bible is a Catholic claim to have authority. You see, it's really not about the books. It's about the authority. It's about the Catholic claim that we tell you what belongs in the Bible. And then they'll usually fall back and say, if it wasn't for us, you wouldn't even know what books belong in the Bible. Well, it's that, that's not accurate. We'll get to that when we do the New Testament. That's completely inaccurate. Um, and it's bogus. But Catholic apologists will frequently try and say that the Jewish Old Testament, I've heard this, I've even gone comments on my YouTube channel on it, was not settled until 200 AD. That the Jews weren't even sure what the Old Testament was until 200 AD. Now, after I've shared with you all those historical things, doesn't that seem kind of ridiculous? 
But there's a separate motive. They want to say that the Bible wasn't known until later. Why? Because they want to say that they're the ones that made it known. There was a belief at the time of Trent that the Catholic Church could actually make Scripture by declaring it's Scripture. But that's irrational. Scripture exists the moment it's written. Then it exists. So how then would Jesus have appealed to Scripture? Or how did the apostles appeal to Scripture in defense of Jesus? Um, how did the Christian have the same Old Testament as the Jews had? It was already established. That's how. The Jewish Old Testament was Jesus' Old Testament. He approves of it and he holds them accountable to it. In reality, the Catholic Apocrypha, these books, weren't added to the Bible officially. This is important. Officially, dogmatically defined for all of Catholicism until April of 1546 AD at the Council of Trent in response to the Reformation because these books helped teach the doctrines that the church was fighting, the Protestants were fighting against. Show us where it is in the Bible. Okay. Now it's in the Bible. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much how that went. That was the first official universal accept, acceptance of them. There are two other councils, Hippo and Carthage, that supposedly endorsed the Catholic Apocrypha. And I'm just going to say this for, for uh, posterity. If someone says, oh, but at Hippo and Carthage, they endorsed the Catholic Apocrypha. Well, there's two issues there. Hippo and Carthage were not universal Catholic councils. They did not cover the whole church. They did not speak for the whole church. And that's one issue. They were provincial. The other issue is they had a different list than the Catholic Church had at the Council of Trent. And what they did at the Council of Trent was they said, hey, here's the list, and if you deny it, you're anathema. You're, you're kicked out of Jesus. You're going to hell. That's what it meant back then. Now some people are saying, oh, it just means you're, you're not happy. Like, or something like that. But that's the kinder, happier Catholic that not the Council of Trent style. But the, the idea here is you are, you are out if you don't agree with this. Well, the problem is that that council disagrees with Hippo and Carthage. So Trent is anathematizing Hippo and Carthage. So you can't pretend that one supports the other. Pope Gregory the Great, who was kind of important in Catholicism in the 6th century, he actually rejected the Apocrypha, wrote down and specifically preached that it was not canonical. Pope Gregory the Great. St. Jerome, who translated the Latin Vulgate, he translated the Septuagint, the Greek, into Latin um, in about 400 AD. He actually did translate the, the Apocryphal books into Latin as well. And so people go, why did he translate it? But then they don't realize that he translated it, but he also wrote in there, these aren't scripture. He just translated it because it was in the Septuagint, the same group of documents that had the Old Testament. So he wrote that it specifically was not scripture. He said they were highly esteemed. In fact, he invented the term apocrypha. He said they're hidden. It seems he got this term from the Jews. They would use this term referring to books that were not scripture, but that were important books, and they would just sort of set them aside. They won't destroy them or burn them. Books were not typically burned. It was expensive and difficult to make a book. So they would just set them aside as though they were hiding them. So they're apocrypha. Let's just hide it, set it aside. It's not scripture, so we'll just leave it over there. And that's what he called these books. He called them apocrypha. There's some problems with these books. There's historical errors in them. For instance, in the book of Judith, one of the books that's in this, uh, these supposedly should be in our Old Testament, at least according to the Council of Trent, it has historical errors. It says that Nebuchadnezzar reigned in Nineveh. How many of you guys remember where Nebuchadnezzar reigned? It was in the city of Babylon. 
right? If you've seen VeggieTales, you know this. It was in Babylon. But it has another problem. It also declares that Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the Assyrians. But he wasn't. He was the king of the Babylonians. It's so bad that some Catholic apologists trying to defend Judith have said, well, it's an allegory. It's an allegory, which is another way of saying that they have, there's, I have no defense against this. It's embarrassing, so I'll just call it an allegory. It doesn't seem to be an allegory. Um, none of the Catholics... Uh, Apocrypha, not a single one of these books claim to be inspired scripture. The way that like Joshua's book does, the way that Moses's books do, the way that Psalms or these other books, many of them do, most of the Old Testament does, specifically claims to be scripture. But none of them do. In 1 Maccabees 9.27, I read to you where one of these books that's in the Catholic Apocrypha says that there were no more prophets, which disqualifies it, it seems to be. Um, the Jews rejected the Apocrypha. They rejected these books, so why, why would I try to add them in later? The scripture says that the, in Romans that the oracles of God were committed to the Jews, and if the Jews say that wasn't one of the oracles, then I should take that word if I trust the New Testament. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament, like I said 300 times, never quotes the Apocrypha, not a single one time. It doesn't even allude to them as scripture. It certainly doesn't quote them the way it does the Old Testament, where it quotes as saying, thus says the Lord. And the book of Jude references some content from possibly from the Assumption of Moses, possibly from a book called First Enoch. Neither of those are in the Apocrypha. And Jude doesn't quote them as, this is written, thus it is written. He just references them. Does the Bible reference books that are not in the Bible? Absolutely, it refers to them. Paul quoted a a pagan uh, philosopher while he was preaching at Athens. That doesn't mean the pagan philosopher's works are now scripture. Everything the Bible quotes isn't scripture. Satan isn't scripture just because God quotes him in the Bible. But if he says, it is written, thus says the Lord, and quotes it, that's different. Now it's elevating it to a scriptural status. But that never happens. Josephus shows us, as I said, the same books in multiple places in Josephus and refers to the books that are laid up in the temple as being 22 in number, which means the Apocrypha was not part of them. In fact, by 70 AD, by the time the temple was destroyed, the Jews had a rule. This was in Josephus's day, right? There was a law that it was forbidden to bring in any, not only new books into the temple, but it was forbidden to even bring new copies of old books into the temple. Now, if you can't even bring new copies of old books, how are you supposed to bring in new books? And yet Josephus limits it to to just 22. So you get the idea here that the Jews never received them. And so we probably shouldn't either. (laughs) Yeah, Jerome, like I said, specifically said they weren't scripture. There was actually a Middle Middle Ages, basically like the NIV study Bible of the Middle Ages. This, This was called the Glossa Ordinaria. And this thing was what was used as the highly publicized, highly approved, greatly referred to study Bible of the Middle Ages. And in this book, the Apocrypha exists. It's in there. Except at the beginning of every one of these apocryphal books, it says this is not scripture. It introduces each of them by saying this is not scripture. Now, this was done with the approval of the Catholic Church. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yet, yet, it's because of the Council of Trent. And because of the Council of Trent, if you're Catholic, you are forced to, you have to say the Apocrypha belongs. And you've got to dig through and find quotes from church fathers who supported the Apocrypha, referenced some part of it. Maybe they believe one piece of it was scripture. 
But why did that happen? Why then did anybody, because there are some of the fathers who believe the Apocrypha was scripture, or at least parts of it. Why did any of them believe it? Well, it has to do with the Septuagint. So they, they didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Greek. Their, the Greek Old Testament was translated, uh, was translated from Hebrew into Greek before Christ. At some point, these apocryphal books, probably later on, entered into this Greek compendium of Jewish works. The Jews knew this wasn't scripture, which is clear from all the quotes and everything I share with you. But if you weren't familiar with Judaism or Jews, and all you knew is Greek, and you didn't know the Hebrew, and you saw this, you might think that these were scripture, just being ignorant. That happened a lot. That happened a lot. They just thought, well, it's in the Septuagint. And what's interesting is when you survey church history, the least educated about Hebrew and about the original languages, the least educated of the fathers were the ones that endorsed the Apocrypha because they just assumed the Jews did. But they were wrong about that. And the ones that were educated and that knew the languages, they were the ones that rejected it. So it just seems to be some confusion. There's some confusion that's a result of the unfortunate separation of Christianity and Judaism. Also, the Trent people, the 53, I think it was, 50-something guys that were gathered together at Trent in 1546, none of them were scholars in Hebrew. None of them knew the stuff that I just shared with you. You know more than they did at this point. But they did know something. They knew that these books were useful in rhetorical arguments with Protestants. And so putting them into, into the Bible was a useful thing. It helps teach the doctrine of purgatory. It helps, it says that alms pay for sin. It talks about praying for the dead. Although that's a, a fishy passage. Second Maccabees has a passage about these, these men who did, they committed mortal sin, what the Catholic Church considers mortal sin. And then afterward, they're like, the writer of the book's like, pray for them, that they might be delivered still. But the Catholic Church says you can't get that from mortal sin. So that even, that even contradicts Catholic doctrine, but they put it in there anyway. So there, there, there's, yeah, there's just no reason. There's no reason. Um, okay, well, that, that's pretty much the content for today. I want to summarize, though, if I can. The most important thing to know is this. The canon started to exist the moment it was written. And as each book was inspired by God, then it was written. It was, that, that was another book now in the canon. Now, man discovering these books happened over time. God helping by giving prophets or giving confirmations and that sort of thing. That's the history. At least that's what history shows us. But that isn't the reason why we believe that these books are inspired. We believe it because prophecy has proven it. Or perhaps just the work of the Spirit in your life and you just, you just receive it like that. I think God's Spirit does that. So the Old Testament claims to be from God. The Old Testament was believed by the Jews to be from God. The same Old Testament I have, the Protestant Old Testament, although I don't like to call it that. How about we call it the Jewish Old Testament? Because that's what it is. And the Old Testament stands proven by prophecy to be from God in all sorts of places all around. And maybe I don't see a, a, a particular prophecy in, uh, in a particular book. Like maybe I look at Esther and I don't see a prophecy in there. But looking at the track record of the Hebrew Bible, I think I'm willing to accept it. I'm not just going to willy-nilly rip parts out because, because that particular part wasn't confirmed by prophecy. So much of it is that it's certainly trustworthy. So before we move on to other stuff that we're going to talk next week, we'll do the New Testament. Um, but for now, here's the Jewish collection. Yes, it's provable. Um, it's spread throughout the old books. And there's no other good candidates. The, the whole stories of like the, 
the hidden books and stuff like that. Like, you know what that's called? On the internet, they call that clickbait. Huh. It's the idea is like, we put something flashy on there to get you to click it. To, what's what? And you click it. Oh, now we get our ads. Now we get money. And that's what this is. Oh, the lost books at the bottom. I mean, who's going to watch a documentary saying, the Old Testament, yep, it's real. Like, like no, they want to hear like the scandal of the Old Testament. Like, that's what they want to read about. That's what they want to hear about. Um, because people are just like that. So, uh, we'll do some questions, but I just want to close this out in prayer first. And uh, then we'll take any questions you guys got. And if I have answers, I will definitely share them. If not, I promise not to make stuff up. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, Father, we thank you for your word that is proven, that is tested. We thank you that there is a, a, it's not a full trail of all the details, but there is a smattering of information throughout history that confirms the gradual reception of the Old Testament as scripture, um, the, the proof of prophecy to stamp your approval on the truthfulness of that. And, um, and we just thank you for that, Lord. We pray that we would be those who are students, true students of the word, and that we'd be bold in our faith in Christ. And as we continue the series on evidence for the Bible, may you bring truth out into our lives. Help us to remember the tidbits of information that we're going to need for those we witness to and share with who may have been misled um, by a soundbite uh, culture that we live in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.